Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 14, Percy and Padfoot. Harry was first to wake up in his dormitory next morning. He lay for a moment watching dust swirl in the ray of sunlight coming through the gap in his four-poster's hangings and savored the thought that it was Saturday. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Tekile. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So when I was in high school, I took a number of classes, one of which was German. German was not the most popular language to take in my high school. You know, most people did French or Spanish, but an elite special squad, including me and five other people, (laughs) took German, I should say, at the higher level because we were the advanced class. And we had a teacher called Mr. Ruger. Mr. Ruger was really engaging. And at this point in high school, I was out. You know, there was one other guy, my friend Nick. Nick and I were the two gays in, in the whole school, at least that I knew of. And... I knew Mr. Ruger was gay. I had seen him around town with his partner. It was also just like common knowledge around the school, right? And at this point, there was no adult at the school who was openly gay or lesbian or out in any way. And in high-level language classes, you're not just learning grammar or vocabulary, right? You're talking about issues in a different language. So I remember one week... There was something about LGBT rights or something to do with, like, homosexuality in some way. And I remember that whole class, I just wanted him to say something like, oh, yeah, well, my experience, A, B, and C, or obviously as a gay man, I support gay rights. or just something that would acknowledge the fact that all six of the students and he as the teacher knew, but he didn't say anything. And in part, it was because we were still living in the shadow of something that in Britain was called Section 28, which essentially kind of forbade teachers of promoting homosexuality in schools. This was a, a hangover of the Thatcher years, the kind of very conservative years of the 80s. But in reality, like, he wasn't ever going to promote homosexuality just by acknowledging his own identity and talking about the the source text that we were engaging with. And I just remember wishing so much that he could have said something in that moment. And so as we've read this chapter through this theme of boundaries, we often talk about how important it is to have boundaries and that you need to, you know, keep a clear delineation. But here was a moment where I really wanted someone to break the boundary I guess just to affirm my reality by sharing his. And I remember I just, I felt so betrayed by him not crossing that divide. 
I mean, but, but in part of what I would imagine is so frustrating about it is that in keeping a boundary and name, he was actually betraying the, like, cultural contract of this classroom, which is that you, like, have r- rigorous, honest conversations, and he wasn't doing that. That's so interesting because because it was such a small class, I felt like I was treated as an adult in this classroom because we talked about, you know, big, serious issues about euthanasia and we talked about animal rights and we talked about, you know, progress in science. And I remember feeling like this was a room of equals. I think that's why it felt so sad to me. Yeah. And I also think I think the boundaries are great, but I don't think they're great when they're an excuse to be a coward. Right. And I wasn't there. And, you know, like he had his reasons for keeping that boundary. But I think that we often hide behind boundaries. The logical extreme of a boundary is I'm just doing my job, which gets very dangerous very quickly. And so we have to even if you're pro boundaries and putting them up, you have to constantly be in conversation with them. Exactly. Okay, Casper, I'm going to put a boundary of 30 seconds on this recap. Are you ready? Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) On your mark. Get set. Go. Okay, so Harry's like, I'm going to write a letter. Um, And so he goes up to the Allery. But guess who's there? It's Cho Chang. And there's no friends to get in the way. And so there's some significant teenage flirting. uh, And it's amazing. Um, And then he sends off the letter. And then um, Filch comes and is like, I think you're sending dung bombs. And then Cho lies for him. And so, like, spoiler alert, she likes him. Um, Great things are happening. Ron, oh, oh, my God. Ron uh, fails badly at Quidditch practice and then um, receives a letter from Percy saying, like Harry's violent beware. I may have spent a lot of time up front because I wanted to focus on the positives of this chapter. And I think that the Cho Harry thing just doesn't get enough attention. It's really true. You're writing a wrong. <laughs> so you got the Percy part. I'm going to add the Padfoot part. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. Um, so yeah, he goes up to the Allery, he comes back down, they have Quidditch practice, they don't, like, work as hard as they're supposed to, Hermione is helping them, um, after Percy sends his letter, Hermione is like, oh, I'll help you guys with your homework, and then, um, Harry is like, what, did I just see Sirius's face in the fire? And they're like, what, did you? And then Sirius and, um, Harry, Ron, and Hermione talk a little bit about what's going on, and then, um, Harry is like, I think you should keep a low profile, and Sirius is like, you're not as much like your father as I thought you were. God, serious. Get it together. Yeah. Transference is real. So, Casper, why don't we start at the very beginning? Because it's a very good place to start. (laughs) (laughs) So Cho runs up to the Allery because she's a bad daughter and, like, forgot her mom's birthday. And so is sending off a quick gift. So self-involved with all of that grief. Yeah. What the heck? (laughs) Cho. And she runs into Harry and Filch comes up and whatever. And she lies for him. And, like, Cho and Harry don't have a super intimate friendship or relationship as far as, like, quality time. No, it's mostly mediated by goo (laughs) or, like, aggressive friend questions about which team you support. Yeah. Or, like, her rejecting him. Right? Like, (laughs) this isn't like, oh, remember that time we went to the movies? Like, there's nothing. (laughs) And yet she's so loyal to him in this moment. And I'm wondering if she feels as though there isn't really a boundary between them. You know, the the type of boundary that would come from being in different houses and from not having spent a lot of time together. I wonder if that has evaporated because she sees them as the two people who are most acutely impacted by Cedric's death. It mm. was within the walls of Hogwarts. 
And I think that that can often be the case. You hear about people who go through traumatic situations together, and there's a bond between them, even if they don't really know each other in any other circumstance. I do think that there's an imagined closeness or a felt closeness even far beyond the time they've spent together or the words they've shared. And here's the other thing that I would say— They're both passionate about Quidditch Mm -hmm. without them being rivals. And so there's this foundation, which, of course, Cedric had as well. So there's even a shared language, even sportsmanship or athletic prowess, which I think they share. And also, I think it's important to remember that they're both at Hogwarts and Hogwarts is in this intense time of change. Right. So we've got Umbridge coming in. There's something about like them being brought together by the intensity of change within Hogwarts in some way. Yeah, and they both did the second task together, sort of. Cho was kidnapped for the second task. I mean, they had very different experiences of that, but they both did do it. And so they've been sort of adjacent to one another through some intense experiences. But later in this book, they will be reminded when they actually spend time with one another (laughs) that this sense of intimacy is true in some ways and is false in others. And like not having boundaries with someone isn't the same as having a relationship with someone. It would be like being in group therapy with someone, right? Like they know your deepest, darkest secrets but in a container. And then we see Cho show up for the DA, right? And I think that that's a way that she really does believe in Harry. And I think that they find an authentic relationship for themselves. But no boundaries does not equal true relationship. I think that's so wise. Where else do you see this theme of boundaries in the chapter? I want to talk about Quidditch. Because the whole point of Quidditch and so many sports is about a crossing of a boundary, right? Very literally, like it's a ball going through a hoop. At least that's one way to get points. And it made me start to think just more reflectively about what is boundary crossing really about? Because, you know, we've talked a lot about boundaries like they're good or like they're inappropriate or, you know, they should be tested or we should be in conversation with them. I love the way that you said that. But sometimes the point is to play with boundaries, right? Is like to kind of test the limits of where is the boundary. And bear with me here, but I I started to think about kink culture and how sex as a way of connection can be a really playful and fun thing. I just wanted to think about like, why is boundary crossing Why can it give us such joy? Like, is it the excitement of something that's forbidden? I just want to interrogate how it can be something that's so joyful. Yeah. I mean, I think that you see it in sexual relationships, but also in friendships and in sibling relationships. There's something about, like, I am allowed to touch you in this way because we are so close. I think that crossing boundaries is a way to to feel safer and closer to someone frequently, right? The closer I am to someone, the more disgusting I am around them. <laughs> I feel like one of the times that I was like, oh, Casper and I are really good friends is when I was like, I don't want to put a bra on to hang out with you. And you were like, great, don't. And I was like, amazing. Okay. Right? And that's like a boundary that I don't cross with a lot of people. But it was a sign that we were closer. So, and not that not wearing a bra is disgusting. That wasn't an example of disgusting. But like crossing those boundaries of appropriateness is about building a safety net. And therefore, when I'm sick, I feel comfortable asking you to come over because like you've already seen me without a bra and you still love me. And like now you're going to see me sick and disgusting and still love me. Right. So it's important to break those boundaries. Yeah. And I think we we feel able 
to test boundaries and play with boundaries when we have that level of safety, which to me suggests that the lady sitting opposite me on the public transit system a few weeks ago must have really felt safe with me because she was cutting her toenails in public. (laughs) And I just affirmed her existence, (laughs) but I really strongly disagreed with that behavior. Yes. I remember once somebody came into my freshman dorm room. I was in my room cutting my toenails alone, and a girl walked into my room and started talking to me, so I kept cutting my toenails, and she was like, can you stop? That's disgusting. And I was like, feel free to leave. (laughs) This is my room. (laughs) This is my room. And for her, the boundary of walking into each other's rooms had been crossed, but the boundary of me cutting my toenails in front of her had not. Yeah, like we all have different places for these boundaries. Yeah, I mean, what you're pointing to, Vanessa, like the difference between one person's boundaries and another person's boundaries or the ways in which boundaries get placed on us. There's other moments in the text where that comes out. I mean, we have this horrible moment where Pansy Parkinson uses this outright racist derogatory language to describe Angelina's hair, who as a captain, like as a woman of color captain of a Quidditch team, if we project our own landscape onto the Hogwarts system, like... Yeah, there's a thing to like take note of and to understand that Angelina is facing multiple kind of structural boundaries that she's having to cross. And so to just see that moment where Pansy is, you know, hurling hatred at her and the way in which it's not really pushed back on by much of the system in any way that we see. At all. At all. Nobody even seems to like go up and check on Angelina. This huge boundary has been crossed so publicly. Everyone seems to be like, okay. Which suggests that it's a normal everyday kind of comment. Yeah. So some boundaries can be really playful to to cross. And other boundaries, like what Pansy has done here, is like an absolute no. And so, I don't know, this whole chapter has made me think in a much broader way about where boundaries are and how there's such a variety of them. It brings me back to some of the things that we say about treating a text as sacred, which is if it's making you better at loving, right? Mm. And I feel like we can put that standard to boundaries as well. Like, Sirius comes in through the fireplace and says, like, I want to visit you the next time you're at Hogsmeade. And Harry's like, the Daily Prophet has reported that you're in London. Like, people are looking out for you. I don't think you should come. And this is where it becomes very clear that Sirius does not see a boundary between who Harry is and who James was. And is like, you're not as much like your father as I thought you were. And that's a moment in which Sirius having a generational boundary between he and Harry would be really beneficial and a clear delineation of a boundary between who Harry is and who James was. Like, these are not the same people. And that's a moment where I think a lack of boundary is making Sirius worse at loving Harry. But then in the same chapter, we see Hermione has been, like, holding this boundary pretty firm of making Ron and Harry do their own homework. And then the letter comes from Percy, and Ron is really distraught about it. And then Hermione drops the boundary of making them do their own homework and is like, I'll check your essays. I think that that is a loving and compassionate act. I think that Often, Hermione should keep that boundary as a loving act of, like, self-love and self-respect. And also, like, the boys actually need to learn how to do their work. But I think that in this moment, not holding on to a boundary for the sake of it and, like, seeing that your friend is in pain and is dealing with something and, like, giving a little is actually a really beautiful thing. And so, yeah, I feel like there's a really easy way to check if a boundary is a good one or a bad one. And that's not to say you won't make mistakes. If somebody were 
to try to tickle me. I could imagine that coming from a place of love to see like, oh, am I allowed to like touch Vanessa in that way? And they wouldn't know that I hate being tickled <laughs> till after I told them. Mm-hmm. So right, like I think that it's okay to mess up, but then to like re-erect those boundaries once you've realized that you mess up. Yeah, I love that idea of like, is this boundary helping me be more loving? I think that's beautiful. Vanessa, this chapter has one of my favorite lines in the whole Harry Potter series. Well, I know. Big claim. It comes at the very end of the chapter when Sirius is talking to the trio from the fireplace. And he says, the world isn't split into good people and death eaters. What I love about the Potter books is that there are so many characters who fall between those two extremes, right? Who are not all good or all bad in in a way that I think we are all mixtures of good choices and bad choices in some way. And it's in this moment where the social context around Harry is polarizing. And so it becomes very, very easy to see only Death Eaters or good people. And I, and I love that Sirius complicates that here because he's essentially saying like the boundary that you want to draw is actually false. And you need to be careful. Yeah. And drawing false boundaries is dangerous. And forget doesn't get you better at loving. It makes you better at hating. I think that's exactly right. Because a boundary is helpful when it helps us to love. And when we create false boundaries, it's doing exactly what Dumbledore has warned us not to do, right? It's the easy option. We don't want to see the complete story. We don't want to understand the context. Or in this case, we want to draw immediate conclusions because it's painful to be in uncertainty. And I think that's what Sirius is inviting us into is that like, you you just don't know. And your, I, I mean, fantastic point about how it's painful to live in uncertainty, I think is it's why this country likes hearing sentences mm. like Mexicans are rapists, right? Mm. Because it gives us a way to just label whole people as death eaters rather than deal with the fact that we live in a complicated world where people who look exactly like us are evil and people who look nothing like us are wonderful and all sorts of situations in between. And so, yeah, we have to be very careful about boundaries. I mean, I even just think reading groups in kindergarten, right? They're for a very good reason. You want to be supporting children the way that they are. But even those, like, those are false boundaries. And, like, kids are often somewhere in between, and they have good reading days and bad reading days. And then you give somebody a whole identity about the fact that they're, like, a turtle and not a dolphin. And, like, that's not a real boundary of your intelligence. Well, and it doesn't just end with turtles and dolphins. I mean, even the boundary between life and death, when you talk to physicians, right, that boundary is an academic one. It's about the progressive slowing down and shutting down of the vital organs. Who's to say where the exact moment of life and death happens? We have to live in a world with boundaries because we have to navigate them. But it it makes me think how and this is a little Foucault, but like boundaries are essentially tools of power. And the person who gets to decide where the boundary is gets to shape the system, which usually works out very well for the person who decided to shape the system in that way. We're, we're back to this question of like, who gets to set the boundaries? We should be questioning boundaries. And so often my world is rocked when I recognize a boundary for the first time that I never even realized was a boundary, right? I remember the first time someone said to me, yeah, the reason why you go to school between the hours of nine to five is to support an industrial economy. The reason we have long summer holidays in Europe is to support the agrarian culture of going to harvest on the farm. None of those systems support people's learning. 
They support the economy. Just things like that. When you know, when you see the world as if for the first time, suddenly th- that shroud is lifted. Right, you see the boundary for what it is. So I have an equally profound example of this, which is that there is a strict boundary in my house that the dog is only allowed on the foot of the bed. And it is a boundary that she completely keeps unless I'm not home. And she obviously doesn't understand that she leaves evidence behind. She leaves like an indentation on the pillow and doesn't understand that I'm like, I see that you did that. And another person was like, well, what if she thinks that the boundary is you're only allowed on the foot of the bed when Vanessa's home, but when Vanessa's not home, you can do whatever you want, right? Like she could have a totally different perspective on what the boundary is. And so she might not see herself as crossing this boundary. She might just be like, that's the rule. For whatever reason, Vanessa doesn't like to see this, but I'm allowed to put my butt on her pillow. So, Casper, it's time for our spiritual practice, but today we are lucky enough to be joined by Bayana Davis. Bayana is the editor and co-founder of Black Girls Create and co-host with her cousin of Wizard Team, which I had the honor to be on recently. And they are simultaneously the two, like, funniest and most willing to stare into the abyss-iest, that's a word, (laughs) people that I've talked to in a long time. So I really recommend checking out their podcast if you haven't already. But Bayana, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. I'm super excited to be here. So today we are going to do Sacred Imagination. Casper, do you want to just tell everybody a little bit about the sacred practice? So we're drawing on the tradition of St. Ignatius, who was really a teacher of a way of engaging with traditionally Bible stories to kind of imagine yourself into the narrative, not just to look at it as an outsider, but to try and feel the um, real physical sensations, the smells, the sights, the sounds that you might hear and to see what we can learn about the characters in the story, but also about ourselves by being physically in that place where the narrative is taking place. So as Vanessa reads, we'll try and really feel our bodies respond to what's happening in the story as we imagine ourselves into it. And just for for context, I'm going to be reading the end of Percy's letter. Mm. So it's Hermione, Harry, and Ron sort of sitting in the Gryffindor common room around the fire. And Ron gets this very long letter from Percy. And so this is the, the second half of it. Seriously, Ron, you do not want to be tarred with the same brush as Potter. It could be very damaging to your future prospects. And I am talking here about life after school, too. As you must be aware, given that our father escorted him to court, Potter had a disciplinary hearing this summer in front of the whole Wizengamot, and he did not come out of it looking too good. He got off on a mere technicality, if you ask me, and many of the people I've spoken to remain convinced of his guilt. It may be that you are afraid to sever ties with Potter. I know that he can be unbalanced and, for all I know, violent. But if you have any worries about this or have spotted anything else in Potter's behavior that is troubling you, I urge you to speak to Dolores Umbridge, a really delightful woman, who I know will only be too happy to advise you. This leads me to my other bit of advice, as I have hinted above, Dumbledore's regime at Hogwarts may soon be over. Your loyalty, Ron, should not be to him, but to the school and the ministry. 
I am very sorry to hear that so far Professor Umbridge is encountering very little cooperation from staff as she strives to make these necessary changes within Hogwarts that the ministry so ardently desires. Although she should find this easier from next week. Again, see the prophet tomorrow. I shall say only this. A student who shows himself willing to help Professor Umbridge now may be very well placed for head boyship in a couple of years. I am sorry that I was unable to see more of you over the summer. It pains me to criticize our parents, but I am afraid I can no longer live under their roof while they remain mixed up with the dangerous crowd around Dumbledore. If you are writing to Mother at any point, you might tell her that a certain Sturgis Podmore— who's a great friend of Dumbledore's, has recently been sent to Azkaban for trespass at the ministry. Perhaps that will open her eyes to the kind of petty criminals with whom they are currently rubbing shoulders. I'll stop there. Ooh. Oh, man. This this letter is always like, just have a lot of feelings about it. <laughs> <laughs> And this is my favorite book, so I've read it, like, a billion times. And it, every time, I'm just like, ugh. Yeah. I'm curious, Bayana, like, who were you while listening to this? Um, I tried to be Percy this time. Oh. Because I think I usually read it from the perspective of, like, Harry and Ron. And we don't actually really see Percy very much in this book. So, I, yeah, I tried to go from his perspective and I, I guess I guess what it is is like I was trying to like figure out where he was and like what the headspace he was in when he decided to write this letter, you know? I don't know. So it seems like so Percy I think has often felt felt like like an outsider with yeah. the Weasleys, and so I think that in this moment where he learns that that Ron has become prefect, he's like, ooh, maybe there's someone who is a little bit more like me, and I think he's kind of trying to jump at mm. that chance to then like be able to guide and mold his younger brother in a way that he couldn't do with Fred and George. But then at the same time, I think about his like ambition to be on top, and so he's not so much thinking about like the values that he was taught as a child, but more like what's going to get me ahead and what's going to get me in the position that I want to be in. Um, mm. So all the things that he's advising Ron to do are things that he himself has done and will continue to do in order to, you know, he's like, you'll get head boyship. And then after that, you can work for the ministry like me and like write about cauldron bottoms. So I'm just imagining him <laughs> in his like tiny office surrounded by cauldrons and like writing this letter to Ron. What really struck me is that it didn't occur to me that this is like, potentially a genuine attempt on Percy's behalf mm -hmm. to reach out to a family member and reconnect with a family member. It is out of character with the way that he's behaving everywhere else. And so he's worried that he's going to be rejected by Ron the way that he's been rejected by everybody else. Yeah, definitely. And also in imagining Percy, like, I wonder if he actually feels as puffed up as this letter, mm. like, behaves. I wonder how many drafts he wrote. And I wonder if he really is worried that, like, potentially Harry is abusing Ron and is like, if you're afraid of Harry, there is an adult who will take that seriously in the school. I just, as corrupt as we know as Umbridge definitely is, we don't know that Percy is entirely corrupt. We know that he's willing to throw his family under the bus, but he could very easily be really believing everything that the ministry is saying. Casper, who are you? I kind of was a little bit of Percy, but then I was also a little bit Hermione mm. um, in the sense that 
it suddenly made me feel like if I was Hermione, especially as someone who wasn't born in a wizarding family, I, I was a little bit jealous. I was like, even though this this letter is like so off the mark in terms of the advice that I actually want, I just suddenly felt like my parents don't really get this situation. I definitely don't have someone like reaching out to me in this way. I don't know. I It was weird. My reaction was jealousy. <laughs> and I think in some way... We never really get to explore that dynamic between Hermione and Ron. We think about it a lot in terms of Harry and Ron and Harry's family that's obviously not with him. But we don't we never really hear about it from Hermione's perspective. And so I wonder, is it a joyful thing to be there or is it a joy mixed with sadness or is it like, is there a twinge of jealousy? If there is, I feel like it's very understandable. Yeah. And I mean, Hermione never talks to her family. Like, so we don't even see that, like her be close with her family in any way and so even right. when percy is estranged from the weasleys like he's still writing to ron there's still some kind of connection there right exactly so my question is for both of you who went into like percy's headspace mm. is his concern about harry being violent sincere or is it you know mm. sort of fear-mongering and like poking yeah i don't think it's sincere because I just can't see how he would believe that, given that he, like, you know, he he's not super close with Harry, but he knows him. And Harry's, what, 15? Like, it's not like he just all of a sudden became violent, right? Like, he saw the things that Harry has gone through. And so I just, I honestly think it's just, he you know, that's what he's being fed. And so he's deciding that that's what he's going to continue to put out because it's what's keeping him in his job, which he shouldn't have gotten anyway. And he only got because... Fudge wanted to keep an eye on the Weasleys. Like, For me, I I wonder if he does. The, the only reason I think that is that it would be consistent. If you don't think Voldemort returned, all we've seen is Harry return with Cedric's dead body. And we've had him being taken to court because Dudley was attacked. You know, so if you don't believe that there were Dementors present, twice Harry has been present to someone being attacked, you know, pr- pretty... Well, obviously, with with Cedric fatally, if he really does believe that Voldemort is not back, then it's two for two, you know. And, yeah. and I mean, I think he could convince himself that. I think that's probably right. I think it would take him some work to get there, but I think he could get there. Well, and I think I think that's what so often happens, right? Is like we end up convincing ourselves into non-rational answers because to accept what really happened. It just involves too much loss. In some ways, Percy's just way out of his depth. Like, he's made this public stand against his family. And I think at some level, he's worried that if he was now to renounce the ministry, like, he would literally have no one. You know you know what I mean? Like, when you just feel like you have no option left, you fight the hardest. And I, maybe that's what he's doing. And of course, the sad thing is they would take him back and they will take him back. But he just, he doesn't know that. Mm. Is there any other reflection that reading this, you know, brought up for either of you? Um, I mean, I don't I feel like I just generally think of the Weasleys in this moment and like their family dynamic and kind of like they all seem very close and obviously are very different and have their conflicts and stuff. And But because so we on Wizard Team just finished um, Half-Blood Prince. And so there is the... Um, the moment where Percy comes in, comes to the house for Christmas with Rufus Scrimger, and it's really just all a ruse to like get Scrimger to talk to Harry or whatever. But like that moment where 
Percy comes in and Molly is like so excited that he's there. But like Fred and George and Ron and Jenny are all just like, I just feel betrayed. You know what I mean? Because that's their big Mm. brother. And like Bill and Charlie are also their older siblings, but they have they're not around because they're much older and they, you know, they have jobs. They are living their lives as adults. But Percy is like their older brother. And no matter how much they make fun of him or how much he may feel separate from them just you know like his values may be different like that is who they look up to I think in like the closest proximity and so then when he leaves I think that it hits the four of them the hardest and so they're the most harsh when it comes to like interacting with him Um, but they're also the first people to forgive him when he does eventually apologize and so I just think about that and kind of like Ron and the betrayal that he must feel reading this because you know some of it I think like at least half of it is Percy and is like genuine him, but I think also reading some of those words and not really believing that those could come from his brother and someone who he's looked up to and grown up with. I think that like him having that feeling as he's reading it is just like another layer on top of all the mess that's in that letter. <laughs> yeah, and for Ron also, like he knows that Percy's been having these fights with his parents, but that's different than having Percy like bad mouth, you know, mm-hmm. your parents behind their back. So, Bayana, before we let you go, I was wondering if you wanted to offer a blessing to one of the characters in this chapter or based off of this spiritual practice either way. But is that something that you would be willing to do? Yeah, definitely. So I think I'm going to do mine for Hermes because I feel like the owls don't get enough love just generally in the book. <laughs> I like to think of the owls as like sentient and having their own opinions on the on wizarding society and the way that the tides are turning. And so I just am wondering like how he's feeling about having to take this letter and, you know, probably knowing what's in it and just thinking about the way that like even he would maybe feel estranged from like Errol or, or Hedwig or, you know, the other owls that like his family has had him around. So, yeah, it's kind of random, but like... No, I love that. He's been separated. Yeah. And he has to go and deliver this thing. And he's like, this isn't going to help. And he probably knows it. So. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, Percy, this is not going to go how you like, think it not is. Not a good idea. But like, I'm going to do it because I'm your owl and whatever. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> well, Bayana, thank you so much for joining us. And again, Bayana's amazing podcast is called Wizard Team. Or go to blackgirlscreate.org to learn more about the amazing work that she does. And Bayana, thank you so much for joining us. It was so fun. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This week's voicemail comes from Alfie. Hello, my name's Alfie, and I currently live in Portland, Oregon. And I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I am such a huge fan. I recently joined the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text chapter here in Portland, Oregon. Yay! And it's such a great part of my life. I'm also a non-binary person. Um, If you don't know what that means, it means that I don't identify as a male or female. I just identify as a person. Um, That also goes for the clothes that I wear. So from an outside perspective, that can sometimes mean having a full beard and wearing a dress and makeup down the street. Um, Unfortunately, the world is not necessarily safe for people like me. And I deal with very, very strong 
anxiety and it's often difficult to leave my house um i have a lot of trouble doing leaving my house even to just walk the dog um but a few weeks ago i joined this chapter of harry potter and the sacred text and every wednesday i have been leaving my house to go and meet up with some really amazing people and it's also brought back spirituality and spiritual practice back into my life which was something that was so so needed and I've been finding myself not so pessimistic and I I am still afraid of a lot of things outside of my door but I also know that there's a lot of beauty out there and there's community and there's been a space and a people that have been waiting for me and they didn't know it and I didn't know it, but we found each other. Um, and that's such a beautiful thing. And I really can't stress how much that's been saving my life and saving my outlook on life. And so I wanted to offer a blessing for everybody that makes the show. I wanted to offer a blessing for everybody who's listening to the show and is making their own chapters. And I also want to offer a blessing to anyone who might be also afraid to leave their house or leave their room. I totally get it. And whenever you're ready, there's a community of people outside waiting for you. Um, They're waiting just for you. So thanks, guys. I'm super excited to hear more Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Casper, I'm not crying. You're crying. I love everybody. (laughs) Alfie, this episode is coming out a week after Casper's birthday, but we are in the studio today on Casper's birthday. And your birthday gift to him was the three of us crying in the studio together listening to your beautiful voicemail. I just, like, can't imagine a better gift. It's It's just just so nice. Thank you, Alfie. Just, like, thank you, everyone who... It's like starting these new chapters that are happening all across the world. I mean, we have like 27 at least communities gathering regularly. In Connecticut and Arkansas and Oregon and Vancouver and New Zealand. And we just love you guys. Yeah, so much. Thanks, Alfie. Okay, Casper, it is now time for us to bless someone in the text. Would you like to go first or do you want me to lead the way as usual? Why don't you lead the way? Mm -hmm. I am going to bless our dear Angelina Mm. for living at a school that does not condemn racism in any way that we see. For like the grace that it must take to just like throw her braids over her shoulder and like deal with this racist comment and just keep leading her Quidditch team. It's just an act of such violence, and it's thrown in so casually. And so I just want to offer a blessing to anyone who, for any reason, has to deal with slurs or being minimized or acts of violence are being enacted against them. I'm so sorry that we don't live in a better world for you and for us. Hmm. What about you, Casper? Vanessa, as I shared a little bit about last week, I'm doing this Instagram project where we're kind of following the Advent journey through this kind of queer lens. And so I was reading this chapter a little bit with that in mind. And it's mentioned at some point in the chapter that one of the musicians in the Weird Sisters, the like wizard kind of rock band who plays the bass, got married. And I was like, hmm, she plays the bass in a band called the Weird Sisters. Is this a gay wedding? Because I hope so. (laughs) 
And it's so much fun sometimes to just like looking, you know, we're talking about boundaries being crossed, like queerness is so much about crossing boundaries. I always try and look for like little queer hidden moments in the text. And it just ties a little bit back to my story as well at the beginning of this chapter. And I hope she gets to sing about it in all her music making, or at least play the bass in a really queer way. (laughs) You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and follow Casper's new project, The Advent Project, on Instagram. We've started a Patreon. Go support us there and leave us a review on iTunes. It is the only way that Casper knows that he is loved. And, of course, send us a voicemail, and good luck being as charming as Alfie. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 15, The High Inquisitor, through the theme of healing. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was brought to you by Ariana Nedelman, Casper Takile, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are still part of the Panoply Network, where you can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. Huge thanks to Alfie for this week's voicemail. Thanks also to Julia Argy, Bridget Goggin, Danny Egan, and Stephanie Purcell. Happy birthday, Casper! Thanks! Yay! Okay, Vanessa, bear with me. I'm taking you back like at least a decade to like hotties from history, as John Oliver would say. Josh Hartnett, the movie star who was in Pearl Harbor, right? I never saw it. Two best friends. One of them's married. And then he dies. We think he dies. And his best friend and his wife like are grieving together fall in love. Oh, no. And then the first guy comes back. Yeah. Imagine if Cedric walked in right now. No, no, no. But like, 